Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any one of you has a grievance against someone else. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, good afternoon. Um, I've had some feedback from the folks on Zoom that um, it's a bit glitchy to quote my 10-year-old son. So I'm just taking it off the slightly glitchy Wi-Fi and hopefully it'll work. And I no doubt we'll get feedback, I'm sure, from the balcony if it's not the case. But um, let me just pray as, as, as we start and look into God's Word. Father God, you give us your scripture for the building up of the body, for the edification of the body. And occasion, occasionally, actually, the ad- admonition of the body as well. And we thank you for the, the preciousness that is your word. For the fact that Paul, when he wrote to those churches all those years ago, actually was writing not just for those churches, but to help believers in the future, like us. And I pray for us, as we look at your word today, that you would really help us to understand what you've got to say to us. Pray that you would speak to us through your spirit, and that we would have the courage to take into our hearts what you're saying to us today. Amen. So, I can say something that all of you, I'm sure, will relate to. Um, Because pretty much everybody here looking around has been at school at some point in their lives. Now, some of us, it was a few years ago. Some of us, it was many, many years ago. Um, And some of us are still there at the moment. Now, I don't know if it's changed at school at all, but particularly when you get later primary into secondary school, you tend to find that you end up, you end up with groups, shall we say. You get the sporty groups, and and they get they get even more fragmented into those in my school who were really into rugby, those who liked football. I went to quite a posh school, so you had some who liked hockey as well. There was that group over there. You had the group who were kind of quite cool musically. They were into the latest bands, and then as we got older, they started to imitate the styles of those bands. And then there was the final group of people, and I, I must admit, brothers and sisters, I was in that final group, who didn't really fit into any of the earlier groups. I was all right at sport, but I wasn't good at the cool sports. Um, my dad wouldn't let us listen to Radio 1 at home, so I had no chance of getting into any kind of music at all. So I was in what was known as the SWATs, the ones who, you know, sat around reading books and stuff and that sort of thing. We talked about dinosaurs as well, to be fair, but, um, you know, I, I was in that group. And, and it, 
children, if you're in those groups, uh, you know, I, I, feel, I feel your pain in some ways because, in a sense, you're the groups of people that didn't quite fit into everywhere else. But the interesting thing is, 25 years on, I'm still good friends with those guys who were my friends in those days. They've stayed really loyal to me as a group. And there's a thing here about identity, isn't there? At school, you're, you're trying to find your identity with a group. And as you, as you grow up in life, you start to then draw your identity from different things. You might draw your identity perhaps from your family background, but often when you start work, you, you draw a lot of your identity from, from your work colleagues or the social things that you do. But actually, if you become a Christian, if you become a believer, um, you also draw your identity from your church. In fact, the church is, is something that is amazing in many ways because where else would you get all the generations people from diverse backgrounds, all coming together for a single purpose. The only other human sort of endeavour you would find is actually a family. And that is what we are. We are a family. But like with any groups as well, there are certain behaviours that you expect with those groups. I remember when I was younger, um, you start off in life often with almost what we call utopian ideas, these ideas that actually if the right group of people come together and, and, and you set off together, things can be perfect. Things can be really good. There, there, there's a famous book written by uh, William Golding called Lord of the Flies. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it at all. And it's a group of boys, a group of schoolboys, who, who sail off and go to a desert island together and, and they want to create a perfect existence together. And, and it's great at the start. They have their own rules. They decide who's in charge. But sadly, things start to go wrong. And without wishing to give you any spoilers, if you've not read the book, things go very, very wrong indeed. And actually, there's a theme you see that, that there's a, there was a film some years ago that was written on a book called The Beach. Similar kind of thing. A group of people coming together with a, this idea of this paradise, and it all falls apart. Sound familiar at all? Garden of Eden? Anything like that at all? But the thing is, I've seen it in life as well. A group of us started a business together 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, and we had really high ideals about how we're going to run the business. And it went downhill after a few years because of different expectations that people had. Now, why do I say all this? What's the the relevance of this to Colossians chapter 3? Well, actually, Paul has spent the first two chapters of Colossians getting them to focus on the fact that actually following Jesus is enough. They don't need to add on anything at all. In fact, if they do add on anything to Jesus Christ, they take away from him. And after he spent time setting this out, he then moves on to tell them how they should live. If they really believe and trust in Jesus Christ, then they should live to please him, not their natural sinful nature. And last week, Jim very helpfully guided us through the first half of Colossians and left us on verse 11 with that wonderful image of the scattered people groups coming together. Now, verse 11 isn't up there, but if you've got a, if you've got a Bible and I want to have a look at verse 11, it, it, it talks about no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. All these different groups, diverse groups everywhere, nothing in common at all, and yet... Christ is all and is in all. So what Paul is saying is that actually, 
when the church comes together with all these diverse groups, they have one thing in common, binding them together, and that is Jesus Christ. And at the very start of verse 12, the start of our passage today, look at it, what does it say? Paul reminds the Colossians that they are God's chosen people. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? So, for those of us today who are sitting here, who've come in from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different walks of life, we're not sitting here because we have chosen to be here, actually. We're here, if we believe, because God has chosen us. We are chosen. We are family. And in the light of that, we've got to face up to the challenge, actually, how do we relate to one another as family? Because we are in, well, I hate to use the word because my wife will shoot me, but we are in unprecedented times here. Because this really hasn't happened, at least it hasn't happened for a hundred years. I mean, has the church really faced such a testing time? Certainly in the West. We've been forced apart relationally for six months. And we've, and we've seen that in all levels of the church. We've seen older people being forced to isolate, working age people worried about their, their, their security, their jobs, or striving ridiculously to keep the businesses going, or in the case of people like Richard and Emma, working every hour that God has sent just to keep people healthy. We've seen children not being able to school, go to school for five months, and through all of this, the churches have been shut for the vast majority of the time. And now we're back together. It's lovely, but we're all wearing masks, and we can't sing. So it's hard. And actually, one of, the, one of the casualties of this has been the fact that, relationally, it's been really challenging, hasn't it? Because Zoom's fine, you know, it's great, but it's not like seeing somebody face-to-face. And I found, it, it, particularly in my work, it's been so difficult to have those little conversations that you have at work with people. And it's even the same with church. We, we can't even talk to each other when we're here. So there's a real challenge here, actually. How do we relate to each other? So what does Paul say here? He talks about us clothing ourselves in verse 12 with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Actually, these kind of characteristics that Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with are actually quite countercultural to our society. How much is things like compassion and kindness and humility prized by our society? Let's look at them then, because what's really interesting actually with these is is they kind of come together as pairs. See, Paul says that as God's chosen people, we should be compassionate. In other words, care for each other, a behaviour if you like, but it's followed by an action. So if you're you're compassionate, you should be kind. I, I care for you, therefore I will do things for you, expecting nothing in return. Humility. Well, that's a challenge for our society today, isn't it? Where we're all so proud. I put myself below you. And actually, the truth is, is that conflict and discord between people, between Christians, often comes when two proud people have relationships. It's inevitable you're going to have conflict in that situation. And yet, we're encouraged to be humble with one another. And what does it lead to? Gentleness. Now, actually... The reason the NIV has used the word gentleness is because not many people know the word meekness. Now, actually, the ESV uses the word meekness. Now, when you say the word meekness, what do you hear? I hear the word weakness. But actually, that's not what it means at all. 
What meekness actually means is it's strength with control. It's being both tough and tender. It's the soldier who goes out to fight for his country and comes back and cradles his baby son in his arms. For those of a certain generation, it's the Athena poster from the 90s, if you remember that particular one. The, the, the very buff man with a baby in his arms. Do you remember that one at all? One for the kids there. Um, but that, you know, that, that, that's meekness. That, how, how countercultural is that? And then Paul urges us to be patient. Personally, I find that quite a challenge, actually, because I'm somebody who often becomes quite impatient. And, you see, this leads to us bearing with one another, essentially putting up with the weakness and foolishness of others for the sake of the relationship. Now, if we look at our church today, we are, it's, we're described as people holy and dearly loved in the passage. Holy, set apart, dearly loved by God. And, and yet, we are people from a completely different backgrounds and cultures, countries. People with different views. We've got people here who are extroverted. People who are, who, who like nothing more than seeing people in every walk of life and others who are introverted, who like their own company more. People with different outlooks on life. People with different levels of education. People with different levels of spiritual maturity. People who you will disagree with because you are sinful and because, and so are, and so are they. People with different levels of brokenness. Some of which we're aware of, some of which we're not. And yet different people put together with one thing in common, believers in Christ. So actually to live with these things, to live with with each other, to show compassion that leads to kindness, to show humility that leads to meekness, to show patience that leads to bearing with with one another, That's actually a challenge, isn't it, when it's worked out? And yet, these are the fruit of the Spirit that we hear so often. But almost we can become blasé. The interesting thing about all of these qualities that Paul encourages the Colossians to be is that they are relational qualities. There's not a single one that you can do by yourself. Church is not cinema. It's not the kind of thing you come along to. It's actually the thing, and I say this bizarrely because we're not allowed to talk to each other at the moment, but we can do obviously outside of here. We're actually designed to have relationships with one another. Have you ever noticed actually that when you deal with difficult issues, it is so much easier if you have a good relationship with someone, isn't it? And if you don't believe me, think about parenting. Think about parenting. If you've got a difficult thing to say to one of your children or whatever, you're a parent, if you, if there's not a relationship there with a child, it is harder, much harder, to get your message across to them. And actually, and I'd say this to all the children here as well, if you think your parents are failing in this area, the greater likelihood is it's probably because they themselves were imperfectly parented by their own parents in this regard. Um, I think parenting is a constant challenge, actually, with, with trying to do the right thing. 
But certainly building a relationship is an important thing. Have you ever, perhaps in, in, in a work scenario, having a difficult conversation with somebody who you don't particularly get on with? That's much harder, isn't it, than someone you know and trust? I, I know with one of my, some of my clients, some of whom I've had for 15 or 20 years, if I have to have a difficult chat with them about something, it's so much easier than with a client I've just started working for. So the challenge for us here is if we see someone in trouble, not an obvious physical need, but a messy situation, do we get involved and help them? If we hold an opinion on something strongly, on how something should be done, and it's not a matter of conscience, of sin, or biblical truth, perhaps just a way of doing something, how do we react? Because actually the truth is, if we both act humbly, if we actually seek to preserve the relationship, better decisions can be made. How do we act meekly to one another? See, I often see this in my own work as a lawyer. When you sometimes have a very, very experienced lawyer on the one side, with all the arguments, all the background, and you've got somebody on the other side who's very inexperienced indeed, there is a temptation there often to really drive home the advantage, to almost humiliate the other person, because you can win the argument. But actually... Is that always the right thing to do? Sometimes to actually act with humility and to preserve the relationship with a person is actually much more valuable. And we see, and in the church context, we're going to get disagreements between each other. But, but let's think. Is it always the right thing to think, I'm right, I'm going to drive my point home here? Or is it better to preserve the relationship with that person, if we're not talking about fundamental biblical truth. What does bearing with mean in practice? And this leads me on to my second point, because Paul makes a really big deal here about forgiveness. He says in verse 13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. My second point, active forgiveness demonstrates the love of Christ. So how does Jesus forgive us? Well, he goes to the cross for us. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, we see him say in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And notice here what Jesus does not do. He doesn't hold a trial to establish right and wrong. He doesn't enter into some kind of plea bargain to say, well, okay, you give away a bit here, I'll give away a bit here. No. He passes it back to the Father. Father, forgive them. They know what they do. And he offers himself as a perfect sacrifice. That's the measure of forgiveness that we're being called to here. So what does that teach us about the forgiveness of somebody who has wronged you? The truth is, we must do it without judgment even when that person is undeserving. Now you might say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. If somebody has really wronged me, if they've damaged that relationship with me, how can I be reconciled with them? Well, it's not saying that, is it? It's saying, forgive them. You may not, tragically, ever be able to reconcile a relationship that's been irreparably damaged. You may not be able to rebuild trust. But you're still asked to forgive now, I struggled a bit whether to kind of say this, but um, 
I'm, I'm going to share a bit of personal testimony in this area. Um, a few years ago, I had a, um, a difficult relationship with um, one of my work colleagues. It had gone very well for a few years, but something happened um, in, in the business that caused, let's say, a breakdown of trust between us. And I personally felt very, very unfairly treated uh, by this particular person. And initially I reacted in a level of shock and, you know, I actually had sleepless nights over it. I was so torn up by this situation. And I think in hindsight, looking back on it, I was very, I was quite proud as well. And I wasn't perhaps admit that I had some wrong as well in this situation. But I, but after this shock dissipated, I felt tremendous sense of anger about the situation that I was in. Real anger. And the danger with anger in you, and I'm sure many of us can relate to this, is if you don't deal with it, it does start to corrode you. It starts to affect your decision-making. It starts to affect different parts of your life. And I didn't deal with it quickly. I carried it. I stayed in that situation. And it got to a head where I knew that something had to be done. And mercifully, I was given a way out of this situation. But I knew I needed to deal with forgiveness. And we went away as a family to a Christian conference. And um, (laughs) there was a session where we were being um, invited to to, to learn how to pray for people. I thought this would be a good thing to do. And and i never forget, on, on the first day, the speaker said, if you're going to be regularly praying for people you do actually need to examine your own heart first. And I looked at my own heart and I thought, oh, I've got unforgiveness here. I've got some, this, someone I've got an issue with who's not a Christian, but I've got a deep issue here with forgiveness. However angry I am, I need to forgive them. And I fell on my knees and I said, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me forgive them. And do you know what? I felt this tremendous weight just lift off me. This tremendous weight... And, and, and I knew I was sort of, I felt free of it. It was incredible. And that anger just dissipated. And, and if you don't believe me, Anna will testify to the fact that my demeanor changed. I'd been very, very stressed up to that point. And it just went. I mean, it's far from perfect now, I admit. But, um, but honestly, it made a huge difference. So I can just say, Forgiveness, particularly when somebody's really wronged you, is one of the hardest things to do. But Paul is saying here, forgive as Jesus forgave us. What a, what a standard. What a standard that is. And he says that all these relational virtues are cloaked by love. And when he talks of love, he talks of that perfect agape, God's love, which brings all these qualities together harmoniously. Paul then goes on to say, in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace. You see, even amongst churches, peace does not always reign supreme. There's a a high failure rate, actually, amongst church plants. It's something we were very aware of as as we were doing this. And the reality is, is that people set off often with the right aims, but you tend to find fractures in the relationships happen after a while. And sadly, church splits are are more common than you imagine. And the reality is, it's because there is a spiritual element at work here. The enemy will seek to attack and divide. And Paul was crucially aware of this when he talked of letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. 
Because life is not straightforward. We've quoted from him before, but it's, 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 it's good to remember again uh, the great work of John Lennon, who, was, who would have been 80 this week had he survived. And he wrote a beautiful song, quite unrealistic song, called Imagine. I'm not going to sing it, even though I'm tempted. But imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. And the world will be as one. I'm very pleased to say that one of my sons plays that on the piano. It's a beautiful song. But it's, but it, but it, but it's an unrealistic song, if, if we're honest about it, in the world today. So what does Paul say here? Does he say live at peace with one another, rather like John Lennon? Well, no. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body... You were called to peace. Actually, the word peace here is closely linked to our word for referee or umpire, which in itself is interesting because um, earlier this afternoon I was at my son's football match. And believe me, uh, when you've got parents watching children's football and so on, you do need a referee. Otherwise, it would be anarchy. Um, the referee plays a very valuable role in ensuring that peace reigns during the football match. The point here is that Jesus gets to be the umpire or referee. The peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. If we're living out his example and are behaving the way that Paul has previously instructed us to live, then peace will result. So what does it mean in practice? Well, if an issue blows up in church that is not a fundamental matter of conscience, it's not a matter of biblical truth or a matter of sin, actually the relationship should be prized ahead of the issue. It is not worth falling out over. There was a church on the south coast that um, some years ago had a, a congregation that had grown over many years to become five or six hundred and I was talking to somebody who was very involved in that church, and, they, and, and I said, well, what was the thing that kind of bound them together? Because I, I knew of this particular church. There were some people who had quite differing views within the church. And he said, well, the interesting thing was that the leadership was quite generous to people where it was over secondary issues, you know, things that didn't matter kind of so much to the core truth. And the reason why, actually, they shrunk in later years was because they came in, the new leadership came in with much more narrow ideas about how things should be done. And it's this idea about peace, actually prizing the relationship. Because Paul says, actually, this term, there's a theme of thankfulness here in verses 15 to 17. At the end of verse 15, he says, be thankful. And why does he mention this? Well, the truth is, if, the, if we approach everything with an attitude of being thankful to God for what he's done, we're far more likely to be gentle in our dealings with one another. And also, the peace of Christ will will rule strongly if we're constantly refocused upon his word. Notice in verse 16, let the message or the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. 
sadness, really, because actually one of the great things about singing to one another is we can sing biblical truth to one another. We can remember it in a way that we often can't if we just read it straight off the page. Letting biblical truth be our guide. Now, children, I I reckon if somebody had talked to you about paradise, about utopia, you probably have an image in your mind as to what heaven or paradise looks like. I suspect, and I'd be very confident here of of the outcome, is it wouldn't be a slightly cold church building in Kenilworth in October. And yet, and yet, this community of God's people here is actually the closest thing that we will get to heaven on earth if we actively seek to live out our lives how Jesus did. You see, there's a secret here that I wish somebody had told me when I was much younger than I am now. Life is not about things. It's not about places. It's not about wealth and money. Actually, life truly lived is about relationships. And and if it's really truly lived, it's actually when you have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. And we're given the opportunity of that here to have a relationship with God the Father through the Son. And once that relationship is right, actually you find in life that your other relationships start to make sense and fall into place. And this is a wonderful example that Paul sets before us today, how we can live with each other, how we can bear with one another, how we can forgive one another, is countercultural to our world around us. But actually, if we do live like this, then that's incredibly attractive to the world around us. It's incredibly attractive. There's one of the reasons why you see the church spreading so rapidly throughout the book of Acts, and we read in the New Testament, is because of how the Christians behave to one another. For the first time, it wasn't just an individual tribe meeting together, but it was people from Gentile backgrounds, Greeks, Jews, all coming together. And the world around saw the love that they had for each other. Now, you may look around this church and think, wow, we we can't live up to those standards. But actually, if we take on these things, if we clothe ourselves with compassion and with kindness humility, gentleness, patience, that will be a real challenge to the world around us. And I also want to challenge us all tonight, and I challenge myself with this as well, if there's anything that you're carrying around with you, hurt and bitterness in your heart, whether that be against another brother or sister here, or someone outside of the church, can I encourage you to deal with it now? I carried it around with me far, far too long, didn't deal with it. If you've got unresolved anger in your life, if you need to repent of impatience with someone, if you need to repent of hardness of heart, of arrogance, of not caring, of callousness, just examine yourself and and come before Jesus now and say, Holy Spirit, help me, help me, deal with this and allow yourself to repent. Because we have a perfect saviour that loved us so much that he went to the cross for each one of us. And if we want to truly live in his light, then the challenge is here actually just just to let go of those things in our lives.
I'm just going to pause for a moment, and I think it is right, it, actually, if we just do take a moment to pray. If there's anybody here at all who is really struggling with, with that sort of thing that they're holding on to in their life, I'm just going to just have a pause for a moment, just, 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 just some quiet, and everyone just bow their heads and just pray in your own heart now. If you need to deal with that thing, then I just encourage you to do so. And after a short pause, I will just pray in conclusion and we'll sing and go home. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, when we read these words, they are a challenge to us because we look at them and think this is almost an impossible standard for us to live up to. And yet, you equip us through your Holy Spirit to live as brothers and sisters in a world that actually doesn't know you. And yet, because of, our, because of what you did for each one of us, because of our gratitude to you for what you've done for each one of us, you enable us through your Spirit to live in a way that is countercultural, that is um, a way that shows your kingdom here on earth amongst your people. So pray for those of us who struggle, who are struggling tonight, who are struggling to deal with those unresolved issues. Pray through your spirit that you would equip us to deal with them. And pray that we might live truly here lives as followers of you. Amen.